The U.S. bishops recently released a report on the diocesan phase of the Synod on Synodality. But does it reflect the thoughts of everyday Catholics? Senior Fellow of Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Francis Mayer, is here with analysis. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned earlier this year, crisis pregnancy centers continue to be targets of vandalism and violence. Why does it seem the Justice Department is doing little to protect these facilities? New Jersey Congressman and co-chair of the Pro-Life Caucus, Chris Smith, and CEO of Compass Care Crisis Pregnancy Centers, Jim Harden, are here to weigh in. Finally, New York Times best-selling author and Fox News personality Ainsley Earhart is here to talk about her new book for families, I'm So Glad You Were Born. The World Over begins right now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have an important show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get to it. Last week, the USCCB published the National Synthesis. That's a report containing the feedback from the diocesan phase of this Synod on Synodality. Approximately 700,000 U.S. Catholics participated. What does the report say, and what does it tell us about the ongoing synod? Joining me now to discuss this and much more, Senior Fellow of Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Fran Mayer. Fran, thanks for being here. I want to start with this national synthesis report by the USCCB. Now, according to the document, the most commonly desired uh, article named during this synodal consultation, all this means is they basically did a survey of those who wanted to take part. This seems to be their big goal, a more welcoming church where all members of the people of God can find accompaniment on the journey, end quote. Mm -hmm. In particular, the synthesis identifies the LGBTQ plus community, divorced Catholics and women as those that the U.S. church needs to be more welcoming toward. Regarding the LGBTQ plus community, the report states, quote, the hope for a welcoming church expressed itself clearly with the desire to accompany with authenticity LGBTQ plus persons and their families. In order to be a more welcoming church, there is a deep need for ongoing discernment of the whole church on how best to accompany LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters. Fran, I want to get your initial reaction to this uh, synthesis. With such a small representative group joining this exercise, about 1%, is this national survey worth very much? No, no, I'm afraid not. I mean, I, the, the intentions are obviously very positive, and uh, certain dioceses uh, did have a very good experience with the, with the uh, diocesan synods that led up to this feed into the national synthesis. But, uh, you know, I think 700,000 people took part, and it's roughly 1% of the entire percentage of Catholics in the United States. And that doesn't even take into account Catholics who actually practice. So um, what you have is a collection of complaints, basically, um, that uh, are not representative of what tens of millions of Catholic families and individuals actually experience as their faith on a daily basis. When I read it, I was yeah. uh, I wasn't scandalized, obviously, but I just I felt uh, that none of the issues that were 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 raised were of, of really significant importance to myself and my family. Well, I I I was questioning the whole focus here. I mean, it would be a little bit like Pepsi uh, polling and doing surveys of Coke drinkers to decide what to do with their brand. It makes no sense. It would seem you'd go to the to the people who are your customers, those who are, or in this case, members of your church. Uh, talk to me for a moment about the focus on the LGBTQ plus community and the Franconian rhetoric we've heard for years now of discernment and accompaniment. When I read that, I thought, how organic is this response for the people, given that we keep hearing this kind of, you know, jingo along the way? 
Well, I think the church is welcoming. I mean, the church is always welcoming to people of goodwill who are looking for conversion. I think the subtext of so much of the LGBTQ issue is you really need to change your mind and accept us for what we are and what we want to do. And you can't get around little documents like Romans uh, with the kind of sexuality that's being practiced by the LGBT, the active LGBT community. So I don't know uh, if welcoming means surrendering to the secular culture, then I think that's a very, very bad idea. And I do think that that's part of the undercurrent of the report. Um, I was also surprised and, and um, rather put off by, by the, the collection of issues that really represent um, the worst of American culture uh, that uh, Roman leadership currently has. I'm trying to, that's not quite clear enough. I mean, Rome has a certain set of prejudices toward the American church and the American experience that reveals itself mm -hmm. in the issues that are raised in, um, in, the, in the report. I mean, our weaknesses and our, our complaints um, fit pretty well with uh, the assumptions that Rome already has about us. And I, I find that um, both distressing and candidly rather offensive. So uh, my my value how, how I value the report is 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 not very much at all, frankly. No, it, it seems like there was a preordained end here, and they got the people to reflect that end. Mm -hmm. But the, the report cites a desire for stronger leadership, discernment, and decision-making roles for women. How do you mm -hmm. see this evolving as the synod in Rome takes place? I mean, the Pope just said women can lead uh, Vatican dicasteries and offices. Aside from being named Pope and Bishop, I don't know what the goal could be here. Yeah, well, nor, nor do I, honestly. I mean, the, the uh, you know, there are certain things that can happen should the church decide to do them. I mean, there's no reason why cardinals have to be clergy, for example. My former boss, uh, Archbishop Schaap, you made that point on a number of occasions privately, and and um, I, you know, I mean, I presumably, good women could 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 do that job if it turns out to be a a possibility. But um, I think the subtext in this is women's ordination, and uh, it it that's already been ruled out. I don't believe it's theologically possible, and uh, pressing for it. I mean, a lot of discernment and a lot of dialogue is not going to change the truth. It just it can't, mm. and yet that seems to be the subtext of so much of what what the report is is driving toward. U.S. Catholics in this report, or one percent of them, or non-practicing, we don't really know who's a member of this or who was surveyed. Let's be honest. You, uh, but the, the member, the people who responded, have highlighted certain wounds that plague the church, Fran, in this report, including the effects of the sex abuse crisis, divisions in the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass, and a perceived lack of unity among the nation's bishops. Uh, do you foresee these concerns being taken up at the Synod when it reaches Rome next year? Oh, I, I don't know what will happen next year, because my experience of Synods in the past, where I staffed delegates, um, you know, things happen at the Synod that are unpredictable and, and have nothing to do with the information mm -hmm. brought, brought to them. So, the, you know, the, the, the very idea of Synodality was introduced in the last third of a Synod um, that had nothing to do with the issue of synodality. It had to do with uh, young people in the faith. It was just sort of plopped on the agenda. So what actually happens next year is anybody's guess, and it's probably already in the head of the Holy Father. Mm. Following the release of that USCCB synthesis report, uh, Cardinal Mario Gresh, who is the Secretary General of the Synod of Bishops, addressed 200 U.S. Catholic leaders at last week's Catholic Partnership Summit. He spoke of complicated issues, such as divorced and remarried people receiving Holy Communion and blessings for same-sex couples. He went on, there are not to be understood, quote, simply in terms of doctrine, but in terms of God's ongoing encounter with human beings. What has the church to fear if these two groups within the faithful are given the opportunity to express their intimate sense of spiritual realities, which they experience? Might this be an opportunity for the church to listen to the Holy Spirit speaking through them also? Your thoughts, Fran? I mean, isn't that a false premise to pit doctrine against God's ongoing encounter with man? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's an astonishing comment from a cardinal of the church. I mean, the, the doctrine speaks to belief, and belief is the is the primary glue of the Christian community. There's also this problem with um, with scripture, frankly. I mean, you know, the 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 uh, the, the church teaches uh, its discipline on reception of the whole of of the, of the Eucharist, and also its ban on homosexual acts based on scripture. You can't get around the word of God. And it implies, the, the Cardinal's comments imply a kind of um, time-conditioned attitude toward what is and what isn't about the, the authenticity of God's word. And when you get into that territory, you're in, you're in very dangerous ground. I've never heard a Cardinal diminish doctrine in the way that that seems to, to diminish it. It's, it's a very odd comment coming from somebody in a position of authority in Rome. Well, and also to say the Holy Spirit actually speaks through these people, but not through the established doctrine of the church that has been handed on from the apostles. This is all very, uh, I think, perplexing and confounding for the faithful. And so, for the most part, Fran, they just tune all of this out. And that's a great tragedy as well. Uh, I want to move on to some photos. And now this is on the Vatican Synod Facebook page. Uh, illustrating the Synod on Synodality. Bear in mind, this is the official Vatican Synod page, and this is how they're branding this entire event. The first is an illustration of the Holy Eucharist raised up and the words, to accountability, written underneath it. A list of wrongs, including the misspelling of the words hypocrisy, is on the right there, including racism and exclusion and a few other things. What do you make of this, Fran? Well, I, it looked like it had been done by um, one of my grandchildren uh, in grammar school. I mean, it's, it's just, there's a kind of an ugliness to the whole thing that I, is astonishing. Uh, in terms of the symbols, uh, what they suggest, um, and they're, they're, they're very problematic, but there, there's a, look, Raymond, I think, I think the, the problem in this whole process reflects a problem that goes to the heart of uh, current, current Roman leadership, which is a, a, a very odd kind of anti-intellectualism, a resentment of clarity, a resentment of doctrine, a resentment of, of traditional disciplines and learned wisdom that I, it's just baffling to me. I mean, it, it really is a, wow. particularly when you, when you are, when, when you've grown up in a church that included John the 23rd and John Paul II and Benedict the 16th, that the the kind of debasement of clear thought that currently seems to be uh, au courant in, in Rome is, is, is very odd. Fran, I hope you'll never insult your grandchildren that way ever again, saying that they would create something like that. I, I, I get children's drawings all day long from readers and things. They never look like this. I'm sorry. Uh, then we have an illustration. They call this tug of war, appropriately enough, with a broken rope. Uh, the words, two in the center suggests that the words on the left are wrong and those on the right are correct. Exclusion to inclusion. Notice how Catholic identity is on the left side and LGBTQ plus identity is on the right. What's the message here? Well, again, we come back to the idea of welcoming and inclusion. I mean, people can't be included in a community that stands for things that they don't believe in. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. So we're supposed to compromise what we, our convictions and the way that we've lived our lives in order to include people who um, presumably have no intention of changing their behavior because they believe it's the right thing to do. And of course, if they really believe it's the right thing to do, then they should follow their conscience. But they can't impose that on a community that's based on other convictions, which is what you know mm. happens again and again. That's a kind yeah, of thing. No, I, I, it's heartbreaking, Fran, to see this because what it really is is ideological silos that the that you have whoever's orchestrating this nonsense in Rome. They're creating an image of ideological silos pitting the church in one ideology against all of modernity and all kind of the fun people on the other side. This is madness. And for young people, it's very confusing. And you talk about disinformation. This ranks right up there, I think. Well, can I make one other observation, too, while we're on this sure. subject? 
Raymond, the the, the uh, typical thing that you hear when we're talking like this is that we're behaving like the nasty older brother in the prodigal son story, that we're resentful <laughs> yeah. of someone who wants to be included in 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 the in the family again. But that's a misreading of the parable. The par in the parable, the prodigal son comes back repentant willing to work as a servant and completely um, open to the idea of conversion. That's why he's taken back. The older brother, of course, is jealous and, and wrong in, those, in that spirit. But we're not dealing with that situation here. We're dealing with people uh, generally who have no intention of uh, changing yeah. and who want their behavior blessed. Before we run out of time, Fran, I've got to share this with you. This is an illustration, again, on the Vatican's official site of participants of the Synod and in the Synod. Not one is specifically identified as Catholic, but represented are Muslims, queer, a grad student, men, women, etc. Um, what does that tell you about the Vatican's perception of who this is for? Well, it's not for my family. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it certainly doesn't sound like something that my family or the friends that we have who are, are active in the faith would recognize as being Catholic. Um, so I don't know what the purpose is. I suppose there's a kind of universalism to it that appears uh, compassionate and open. But, you know, if, if your brain is too open, it falls out. And, and uh, I think there's a lot of, again, this, get back, this gets back to a pattern of... of of um, uh, soft, not rigorous thinking in, 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 in a lot of what's yeah. going on in the church right now. Well, it's, yeah, it's wish casting. It's wish casting. This is how, how certain people wish the church looked or imagine it to themselves. Uh, th this illustration, which made its way all over social media this week, uh, again, Vatican officially released, depicts a female priest prominently featured in the center, along with a young man in a pride shirt. The illustration reads, we are the young people and the future, and the future is now. Um, I, I, it, it, this is, I don't even know what to make of this, but it, it goes on to say, we desire to be on advisory councils and make decisions. If this wasn't a family show, Fran, I'd ask what the, was this, but yeah. I'll just ask you, what do you make of it? Well, I mean, the, the point of being an adult is that you form younger people. You don't let them form you. I mean, that, that's mm. the whole idea of being a mother or father is that you have teaching responsibilities. The idea that we should we should let young people simply be who they are and tell us what they want, you know, listening is a very important part of being a, uh, the head of a family, but that's not leadership. I mean, the, the, the issue is that the church needs to form people to serve Jesus Christ and to, and to yeah. evangelize the world with the gospel. I, and that's that whole spirit seems to be lacking in a lot of, in a lot of what, yeah. You know, circulates in these synodal discussions. Well, look, it's one thing for, for uninformed people or people who are wandering and searching to draw a little picture and put that up. It's quite another to then have Vatican officials give that the watermark of the Synod of Bishops and release that officially through church organs. I mean, that image with the priestess, that came from a Philadelphia gathering of college students uh, whom said that holy order should be open to women. So why is this on the Vatican Synod Facebook page, Fran? What do you think the intention is here? Oh, I think the intention uh, may, be, may be very positive. I mean, it may be, look, we're not afraid of this. It may be this. It may be that we're not afraid of yeah. this. We're going to be open to it, and we're going to discuss it frankly. And we're going to come okay. down on the side of, of, of Catholic belief and identity. That's the way I hope it is. Uh, the... the mm -hmm. But again, I mean, the pattern of, of thinking doesn't seem to support that kind of uh, rosy conclusion. And that's what's disturbing about mm. the whole thing. You know, synods, I want to make this I have to very clear. Synods, synods uh, are legit, a legitimate part of church life. I mean, they can be done very well. And some of the dioceses did them very well. But the overall process is problematic. And being problematic doesn't point to a good result. Um, next year at the at the um, Senate on Synodality. 
Now, I'll, I'll, look, I'll frame this very simply, Fran. If, if a group of women wanted to know how to behave, I don't think they'd convene a group of men and ask them to tell them how to do it. <laughs> I think they'd convene women, women members of their own group, right? The Catholic Church, I'm sorry. I, I think we've missed the boat on the survey pool here. If you're going to get an honest result of what the faithful believe and not people who just either hate what you believe or really don't give a damn. I mean, I'll just leave it there. I have to move on to the Pontifical Academy of Life, which is which tweeted the following, Fran, on Wednesday regarding morality. It said, morality should not be dogmatized. It would be a theological error, not just a strategic one. The only thing that is definitive is the commandment of love for one's neighbor. Your reaction, Fran, when you read that, yeah, coming I from have... the Pontifical <laughs> Academy for Life. Yeah, I, I just have no idea. Uh, what that means. I mean, th there again, there's this pattern of resentment of rigorous thought um, that's mm -hmm. captured in that word dogmatized that I just find baffling coming from Roman leaders leadership. It's just got it's it's utterly an inadequate way of doing the job. And uh, obviously, love has to form everything. You speak the truth with love, but you do, you do have to speak the truth. And 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 so. Uh, the pontific—it's really bizarre too, because I mean, the Pontifical Council of Life—it's uh, just you'd expect Academy of Life, rather. Uh, you'd expect um, right. them to be committed to life, and instead, they're just getting into all this kind of really strange things. I mean, it's very odd things. Yeah. I'll leave you with this. Lastly, the Vatican uh, announced on Monday that Cardinal Jose Tolentino Mendoza has been appointed by Pope Francis as the first prefect of the Vatican Dicastery for Culture and Education. Now, the new apostolic constitution merged the uh, former Pontifical Council for Culture and the Congregation for Catholic Education together to form a new dicastery. This 56-year-old cardinal, originally from the Portuguese island of Madeira, is a, an expert on the relationship between literature and theology. According to a tweet by the National Catholic Register's Vatican correspondent, Ed Penton, in 2018, Mendoza, this cardinal, wrote a positive preface for radical feminist sister Teresa Forcades, who supports queer theology, feminism, contraception, abortion, and so-called feminist ordination. Your reaction, Frank? Well, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, I'd have to—I don't know either of, of, of the— figures that you're talking about. So drawing conclusions would be a little odd. I mean, he may have written that before he knew what the content of the of, of, the, of the, the body of work of the nun was, but but it's just another example of kind of strange going ons in the place where you'd expect um, solidity of thought. Yeah. Well, we shall keep watching together, Fran. Thanks for helping make sense of it and, uh, uh, you know, being a, a, a rock in the chaos. So, <laughs> Fran Mayer, Senior Fellow of Catholic Studies at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, thanks so much for being here. You bet. God bless you. We are just weeks away from the release of my new picture book, The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. It is the true story of the wise men, rooted in history and archaeology, it goes on sale October 11th. It's a spectacular adventure for the whole family, and I hope you'll come see me on tour. I'll be in Nashville, the Villages, Mesa, Arizona, New Orleans, Reagan Library, Birmingham. Go to RaymondArroyo.com. All the details are there. And, you know, people always ask me, I want a signed edition of the book. Well, your wish is my command. If you go to my website, there's a link there. You can pre-order a signed copy of The Wise Men Who Found Christmas from Premier Editions. We're also doing a special live signing on October 13th, and of course, you can take part in that. And you can always order the book from the EWTN Religious Catalog and wherever books are sold. A Catholic pro-life activist is arrested in connection with an alleged altercation with an abortion escort outside a clinic one year ago, and crisis pregnancy centers continue to be targeted. Why isn't the Justice Department doing anything to protect them? Joining me to discuss this and much more, New Jersey Congressman and co-chair of the Pro-Life Caucus, Chris Smith, and CEO of Compass Care Crisis Pregnancy Centers, Reverend Jim Harden. Thank you both for being here. I want to start with this arrest of Mark Hauk. Um, 
who pleaded not guilty to federal charges on Tuesday after the FBI arrested him at his home in Pennsylvania. Now, this arrest concerns an alleged altercation with an abortion escort outside an abortion clinic. Now, that was back in October of 2021. Hawk's attorney, Peter Breen, has said the case already made its way through the state court process and was thrown out. But the Biden Justice Department took up the matter nearly a year later, and they call it a form of political uh, or, or rather, people are calling this a, a form of political prosecution. Now, 22 members of Congress are demanding an explanation from the Department of Justice. In a press release, Representative Chip Roy of Texas said, quote, Attorney General Merrick Garland oversees an increasingly politicized FBI that seems hell-bent on making examples of average American citizens who don't align politically with the administration. Congressman Smith, what do you make of this arrest uh, in a case that had already been thrown out in state court and the behavior of this Justice Department? Well, I think we're talking about persecution, not prosecution. Uh, they're using their enormous powers to wage uh, kind of a legal war against pro-lifers and people who have traditional values. Uh, this Justice Department is egregiously flawed. Uh, they, they, their prosecutorial discretion that they, they use uh, is to go after people with whom they disagree with. And that's the big difference here, with whom they disagree with. Uh, you know, justice is supposed to be fair and, and equal and not, not something where you put your hand on the scale in order to promote a certain viewpoint. And uh, so, you know, mm -hmm. there's no oversight whatsoever of this administration under the Democrats. Zero. Uh, thankfully, if we do take control of the House and hopefully the Senate, there will be rigorous oversight, uh, subpoenas that would be handed down. Uh, and uh, to get to the bottom of the, many of these things. And, and Raymond, as you know, our bill that we've introduced, and, and Catherine Boris Rogers is my chief co-sponsor, uh, that legislation will require that the inspector general look into these terrible terroristic attacks that are taking place uh, at pregnancy care centers uh, and give us the information as to uh, this lack of concern uh, when terrorism acts are being committed. Congressman, in the months following uh, the Supreme Court's decision to return abortion to the states, we've seen 50 incidents of uh, vandalism and targeting of pro-life crisis pregnancy centers across the country. Look, I, I mean, I've even seen as many as uh, upward of 80 attacks in some reports. Right. Now, Jim, one of your Compass Care facilities was firebombed a few months ago. Uh, just last week, the FBI canceled their scheduled analysis of footage from that facility. Why? Well, they wouldn't tell us why, but uh, 114 days since the firebombing and zero arrests. Um, you know, since May 2nd, there have been over, as you say, upwards of 80 different attacks on pro-life pregnancy centers and no arrests. Um, look, on September 19th, we had to file a suit against the police department just to get our evidence back, our video evidence back, so that we can, our attorneys can start the prosecution process, but they refused to give it to us. And I said to a, to a reporter the day after, I said, it's a little unsettling to come out against the police department and the FBI, because we believe the FBI is choosing not to make arrests. And he said, why is it unsettling? And I said, it's because I, I, I'm afraid of character assassination. I'm afraid that they're going to engage in some kind of reprisal against pro-lifers. And several days later, mm -hmm. they go after a, a dawn raid of a, a nonviolent pro-life leader in Pennsylvania. It's happening. They're, they're, instead of ro just simply robbing us of, of equal justice under the law, they're now attacking pro-life people because of their ideology. Hmm. Congressman, last Tuesday, you introduced a new House bill, Protect Pregnancy Care Centers Act of 2022. Uh, if enacted, the bill would require the Justice Department and the Department of Homeland Security to provide Congress with an account of their investigations, if any, into the attacks against these centers. In the bill, you state that, quote, the Justice Department has abdicated its duty and failed to provide justice for victims of violence. Why have we not seen the Department of Justice or the FBI go after the people who've committed violence against the pregnancy centers we were just talking about? Well, I think it has everything to do with bias against pro-lifers. Uh, I mean, the fact that this administration and Biden himself is the abortion president, he and Harris, uh, everything that they do is integrated with the promotion, funding of uh, and furtherance of the abortion agenda, both domestically and internationally. Uh, so when advocates stand up 
and with the wonderful volunteers uh, and, and people who are involved with pregnancy care centers are out there helping women uh, through a very, very difficult time, and they love them both, mother and child. Uh, they see that as a threat to the abortion business, uh, that Planned Parenthood uh, runs so effectively in terms of a moneymaker. Uh, and so they, they are, not even are, they just go on the side of uh, we're wrong, they're right, and um, people can do whatever they want. I have been shocked. You know, I'm a great believer in law enforcement. Very, I, I'm endorsed by all the all the leaders of whether the PBA or FOP. Uh, I'm a great believer in law enforcement. But at the very top of the FBI, and then sadly with Merrick Garland, uh, we have unfair justice. Uh, so it isn't justice at all. It's injustice. Uh, and again, they choose Congressman, to look the other way but, but, on the other but, side. And uh, yeah, but aren't all of these attacks punishable under the FACE Act, the Freedom of Access to Clinics Act of 1994, which would include fines and jail time? Fines, jail time. And again, under FACE, uh, you know, if people use bombs or threat of force, uh, that's that's different. But these are nonviolent individuals who are out there uh, sidewalk counseling uh, and they throw the book at them uh, and even provoke actions uh, that then gets a reaction, uh, and it's all one-sided. Congressman, what's been the response of your colleagues to this bill? Uh, are, are, are there any Democrats who support it at this no. point? I mean, it's happening in their Not districts. A one. I know every single Republican, I believe, will support it. We already have 30 now co-sponsors. It will grow. We will pass it next year. We might have a tough time in the Senate because of the filibuster, but we will do oversight hearings about this lack of concern for the welfare and well-being of the wonderful people, and I mean wonderful. I've known them, I've been in the pro-life movement for 50 years, along with my wife. The pregnancy care centers are the front lines of saying, we love you both. And to go after them uh, with, with Molotov cocktails and spray painting horrible things, threats, uh, and to see no response from the Department of Justice. Uh, Garland, in my opinion, uh, is acting very dishonorably uh, and with shame in not going after these terroristic threats. Uh, uh, people that are doing these things. Uh, I, uh, Reverend, I want you to respond to this, and then Congressman Smith. Are you surprised by the lack of condemnation from the Biden administration? Last Thursday, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris told a group of uh, Democratic attorneys general the following. You are taking on, rightly, the crisis pregnancy centers launching public education campaigns, and in the midst of the vast amount of confusion, the need of you as the truth-tellers to sort out fiction from fact and combat misinformation and disinformation, which we all know often creates a situation that is ripe for predatory practices. Reverend, is that encouraging the targeting of crisis pregnancy centers like yours? Oh, no, she's actually talking about us. <clears throat> she's actually, those are, those are the words and language that the James Revenge and these pro-abortion politicians are using to attack us. They're talking about how we're, we're, you know, even the Biden administration talks about how, you know, these pregnancy centers are engaging in misinformation or disinformation. And um, and she's not talking uh, to, to encourage us. She's talking against us. Uh, the the, the pro-abortion politicians in charge of the Democratic Party are colluding, and they have the same words as, as James Revenge, the pro-abortion terrorist group. The same words uh, that they're that they're using together uh, with Elizabeth Warren and all their ilk, uh, and and they're 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 colluding with big tech to censor us, which they're doing now. We've got we've got a, a bunch of attorneys working with us on on, uh, on looking at that. Um, there is there is uh, you know James Revenge. Is that this, this pro-abortion terrorist group is the Democratic Party's new KKK, and the cross in the front yard mm. is burning down pregnancy centers. And I'm telling you what, the collusion needs to stop. And where our, our attorneys are actually looking into dusting off the third uh, KKK Act of 1871 to suspend habeas corpus because we're being denied uh, equal justice under the law according to the 14th Amendment, and it needs to be brought out. And these people need to be arrested. And I think they're afraid. The reason why they're not making any arrests is because they're afraid that if they make an arrest, people are going to start drawing the dots between big tech and these pro-abortion bad actors. And, uh, and, and, and they're going to swamp mm. a lot of political boats, boats for the Democratic Party in the midterm elections. And they're going to lose their aspirations and go to jail. Mm. 
Uh, Congressman, your take on what you heard Kamala Harris say there, I mean, it's certainly well, demonizing yeah. these, these oh, preg definitely. crisis pregnancy centers as agents of misinformation and disinformation. Well, Vice President Harris is not only smearing the good work and the witness for life of the pregnancy care centers, uh, this is incitement. Uh, this, this gives the green light to these terroristic organizations and individuals. Uh, you know, now that Roe has been overturned, and I've long predicted this myself, you'll see a huge manifestation of violence on the part of the pro-abortionists. If you can decapitate or, or cut off the head of an unborn child, dismember that child, put chemical poisoning into their systems to effectuate an abortion, uh, other kinds of violence are very, very close uh, at hand for them. And, uh, and again, the front line of the pro-life movement, of all of our concern for the women and the babies, are the pregnancy care centers. So they're out to destroy them by smearing them and by incitement to violence. Mm. Jim, you have a lawsuit against the Amherst Police Department to, to secure the return of security footage that you handed over to them uh, after the firebombing that took place at your facility. Why did you give them the footage in the first place, and what's the status of the suit? Yeah, great question. We gave them the video footage <clears throat> on a good faith gesture um, because th the catastrophic damage to our facility after the firebombing uh, was so severe that water damage uh, and, and the fire damage had the power out. So we could not make a copy. So we gave it to them in, in good faith to get the investigation going. And the next day we asked to see it. You know, you'd think that would be, you know, common protocol for uh, the victims to be able to see who their attackers are just to give the police or the investigators some leads. Nope. They refused to let us see it for weeks and weeks on end. And they didn't even, the FBI didn't even take a look at it for five weeks, five whole weeks before they even, you know, were even interested in looking at it. Uh, so now we're having to file, we, we've asked on multiple occasions, very politely, this is just common sense, let us see our own video, give us a copy. And the, the answer is always no. And the reason why, they say, is because if they, they're afraid that if they give it back to us, it'll foment violence from the right. Violence from the right. I mean, we're, we're on the right. There's no violence coming from him, from us. And the, the town attorney representing the town and the police department said the reason, uh, he said, why not? What, what, what's, so, what's so wrong? We're, we're asking what's so wrong with us getting the video back. He said, because, well, you, you know all the nut jobs on the, basically on the right who are, who are carrying AK-47s and guns, bombing and killing people. He's referring to pro-lifers. He's, he's saying that pro-lifers mm. are terrorists. We're the ones getting firebombed. We're the ones getting shot in the back. We're the ones being robbed of, of equal justice under the law after 70 attacks and no arrests. What, th th what's happening right now is reprehensible, unconscionable, and it needs to stop. And arrests need to be made now. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts this summer declared that crisis pregnancy centers should be shut down. Last week, she sent a letter to a pro-life pregnancy center network, Heartbeat International, accusing the group of, quote, luring pregnant people, many in desperate situations, to affiliate CPC facilities by using a variety of false and misleading tactics and collecting personal health care information, which may be used to put women's health and freedom to choose in jeopardy and to put them and their health care providers at risk of criminal penalties. What do you make of those accusations, uh, Reverend, and uh, your thoughts on how this political movement, the narrative we're beginning to see, might impact the services you provide to girls and young women in difficult straits? Well, I would say that uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren does not understand the nature of, of what it means to serve a patient a woman facing unplanned pregnancy. Of course, you've got to collect information. Everybody does. In fact, the Obama administration under Obamacare requires an electronic medical record system be kept by anybody who, who, who's, a th who's requiring uh, payment for services. Pregnancy centers are, do not require payment for services. We provide all of our services for free. And so she's concerned mm -hmm. that we don't, we, we don't have an electronic medical record system. But in fact, Heartbeat International is promoting an electronic medical record system. I don't speak for Heartbeat International, but they do great work. And, uh, and, and the, what, what we need to be concerned about and what Elizabeth Warren needs to be concerned about is, is the abortion industry covering up uh, you know, child sex crimes like we saw with that poor 10-year-old girl in, in Ohio that was transported across state lines in the, into Indiana. Her, her confidential information was spread out all over the media. How did, how did 
the media get that confidential medical information. They got it from the abortionist. Who's violating uh, the, the, the confidentiality of patients? Who's putting patients at risk? It's the abortion industry. It's the billion-dollar abortion industry, and 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 they're 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 looking to protect them. They're not looking to protect women. They're looking to insulate the abortion industry, uh, doctors who perform abortions, as well as the pharmaceutical companies from any liability, because they know mm. that abortion harms women, and it's not true medicine. Mm. Reverend James Harden of Compass Care Pregnancy Services, Congressman Chris Smith, who had to run off for a vote. We thank you both for being here. Thank you. My next guest is author of three New York Times bestsellers, including two number one bestsellers for children and families. She's also co-host of the top-rated Fox and Friends morning show. Tonight, she's here to talk about her brand-new book, I'm So Glad You Were Born. Please welcome Ainsley Earhart to the program. Ainsley, this is your third children's book. Thank you for being with us. Um, I love that God is as much a character in this book as are the parents and the children. And you write about God almost on every other page. And I, I want to quote this and put it up for the audience. Uh, when you first arrived here, so tiny and new, the world jumped for joy at God's big plans for you. God made you spectacular, one of a kind, creatively crafted, divinely designed. Why is it so important for you to emphasize God's role in children's lives and all of our lives through this book? I think because everything that I have in my life, I know is because of God. And I want other people to experience the God that I serve, the God that I love, the God that has blessed me over and over and over above measure. I want people to know that God in a loving way because I want you to experience this. I love everybody. I look at everyone as God's child and I want people to know him so that they can have the blessing, so that they can have hope for eternal life after this. Uh, Ainsley, your mother is a retired school teacher. And in a recent yeah. interview, uh, I read that you, you claimed she was instrumental in teaching you about the importance of autonomy. How has yes. that lesson shaped um, not only you as a parent, but your own daughter? So autonomy is teaching your children to stand on their own two feet. And when I was uh, writing, um, they called it a memoir. I feel like you have to be, you know, Barbara Walters and very experienced to write a memoir, <laughs> but it was about my faith. And um, I called my mom and I said, mom, this was before she had her stroke when bless her heart, she can't really talk as well now. But I said, mom, mm. what was the, what's the most valuable lesson, lesson a mother or a teacher can teach children? And she said, autonomy to stand on your own two feet. Mm. And she said, I tried to do that with y'all. I tried to make you do your chores and teach you to, you know, make your bed or look the dishwasher, un unload the dishwasher, fold your clothes, pick up leaves in the front yard with the magnolia, leaf, uh, magnolia tree during the fall. I tried to make you do all these chores and do it yourself. That's why you did your homework by yourself. That's why you did your projects by yourself. I wanted you to get your work done and in Ainsley fashion, Ainsley style, but I wanted you to take responsibility for this. So it's hard as a parent. I only have one child and I'm in my 40s. This is my only child. So it's it's easy for me to clean up after her. It's easy for me to help her with anything she's doing. But really, I need to say to her, go do it. You clean up and then, mm -hmm. you know, go go behind her maybe and make it Ainsley, you know, make it a little cleaner. But yeah. so my mom's <laughs> that. I think I think that's important. She was a teacher for 33 years. Um Teacher of the Year a few times, nationally board certified. She was an amazing teacher. She loved going to school every single wow. day. No, we, we need more of them. You know, these dedicated yeah. people. I, I you know, yeah. I, I rue the day that we, we sort of, th there are some of these school districts we've been reporting on who turn out these old teachers and say, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're beyond the pale. We've got younger, fresher talent. You know, it's time for you to retire. We lose such wisdom when that happens, not to right. mention the selfless dedication that these men and women have to, to children that they've taught through decades. And I, I, the, your mother is such a testament to that. Why did you decide to write, I'm glad you were born now, Ainsley? And, and what got you into writing? Uh, now, people say that you write for children. I call these family reads because that's who ends up reading them. It's families. That's true. That's true. Because we read as a family together every night. Mm -hmm. I think 
you know, when I lived in San Antonio, Texas, before I got the job at Fox, I was sitting in church and I just felt like God was telling me, you need to write a children's book. My sister's a, a teacher. She teaches five-year-olds, I think now. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's five this year. I think it's five. And my mom always taught early childhood development too. So they they would share notes and share um, lessons. And so I grew up in this environment with like lots of extra teacher stuff around. So I would pretend I had a classroom in my bedroom with all my stuffed animals. So I love teaching. And I thought I can go at this time. I had a little dog and I said, I'm going to write a book about my dog. And I want my mom and my sister to go on the road with me and we'll sell the book with a little stuffed animal that looks like my dog. But my dog was always picked on by the bigger dogs in the park because uh, at this time, it was Sax was his name. He was about one and a half, two pounds. He was so little hmm. and he was a special dog. I mean, he, I don't, he was a mix of a bunch of different things and he had so many health problems, but he was my little baby he used to sleep right here on mm. my neck. And in the car, he would mm. sit behind my, my head and look out the window, <laughs> but he always needed me and he always needed to be picked up. So you could not walk around your, your house or your apartment without holding him. So he was just this little special child. So I wrote a book about him the publishers rejected it, said we have so many books about dogs, but come and meet with us. We're interested in doing a book with you. This, at this point, I'm at Fox and Friends. So um, I'm sitting at the table with them. I tell them that my dad left me all these notes next to my cereal bowl and all these sayings and scriptures about my childhood and how I get to talk about my faith on Fox News. So the ladies were taking notes of all this. And at the end, they said, I know what we want your book to be called. It's going to be called Take Heart because I read that scripture on air one time. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so they said, Take Heart would be a good name of that book. And we want you to write a book of all those lessons that your dad taught you. We want you to combine all those lessons into this first book. And I was pregnant at the time. And these were all the messages I wanted to share with my daughter. So that's how those books came to be the first two. So when this book came around, I wanted to honor my mom who had the stroke four and a half mm. years ago, and now she doesn't have a voice, but I have a voice to give my mom's message and pass it along to the rest mm. of the world. And this is what she always said to us. I'm so glad you were born on our birthdays. And so then wow. I said it one day on air to Steve Ducey on his birthday. And he said, he just started laughing. The whole room started laughing. I was like, I know it sounds weird and hokey, but this is kind of a Southern phrase. I'm sure you've heard it, Raymond. But I said, I this is indeed. a Southern phrase. Yeah, it's a Southern thing. And I said, this is what we say, because your, your birthday's special. It's the day you were born. Right. It's the day God brought right. you into this world to do amazing things and to change lives. So now we all say yeah. it in unison together on someone's birthday. And Steve's wife wrote in a few years ago and said, <laughs> I have the name of Ainsley's next children's book. You need to call it. I'm so glad you were born. So that's how it came to be. Wow. I had no idea that there was a connection, an on-air connection there. Well, yes. and, and it is, a, you're right. It's a great Southern phrase. We, you know, everybody's mama says that at one time or another. But uh, the idea is really quite profound because not only is the mother saying and the father, I'm glad you were born, but all the ripple effects of that life and your life and the things you do and the people you touch and the life you bring into the world. Now, you dedicated this book to your daughter, Hayden. What was the most important thing and what is the most important thing you've learned from being a parent? That you can be scared before while that baby, while you're growing that baby, or if you're adopting the baby, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to be a good parent? Am I going to be able to keep my cool? Am I going to be able to teach her when she brings so much of homework and I don't understand algebra anymore? And all these fears, am I going to, am I going to teach her enough about God? Am I going to live the right life? Am I going to um, be the parent I need to be? Am I going to make the same mistakes that, you know, our moms and dads made? You get, you're just fearful. And then you have this baby and the doctor puts that baby in your arms and you know, everything's going to be okay. And you can't wait to raise this child. You get, they bless us. You get to see the first time they see see an animal, the first time they see rain, you get to take them on their first walk, something they will never remember, but you will. And then they'll pass, they'll get those experiences with their children. But what I want people to know, and when you read this book, the first two were very lyrical and very sweet. This one is sweet, yeah. but it is basically... God has got you. And this is a fun book. It's about dance parties. We have dance parties, Raymond, in this apartment right behind me, that door. That's my kitchen. We bring out this huge Tupperware container. It's full of, of um, drums and all kinds of instruments. <laughs> so many different fun instruments in there. And we all grab our I favorites. 
crank the music up and we run around and have a dance party and we've got, you know, the triangle and chimes and the um, drums and the guitars and we're just running around and we switch instruments throughout the songs and sometimes it's praise and worship, sometimes it's Tayo Cruz, sometimes it's the Trolls soundtrack, whatever she's into. <laughs> and we just have a fun time. I want this house to be fun. I want to have good food in my house. I want to attract all the little kids. I want them all to come to here with their moms, you know, play dates now, the moms come. So the moms, we sit in the living room and we talk and the little girls come in and do fashion shows and they wear the plastic little high heels and they love anything girly. So they come in and do the whole display for us. They bring the instruments. We have dance parties. We do crafts. We bake cookies right here on my dining room table at Christmas and decorate them. This is going to be the fun house. I want this to be an oasis for my daughter. There's no yelling. There's no screaming. If she gets in trouble, she goes to timeout. We have conversations, but I just want this to be this a blessed home. And so this house has been mm -hmm. anointed. I've gone through every room and prayed over every room. And I just want Hayden to have a, a wonderful childhood here. Mm -hmm. Well, a good Southern mama. I love that. With good food first and then fun, yeah. the right order of things and, and prayer in every room. <laughs> right. uh, you host a Bible study on Fox Nation and have attributed your strong sense of faith to your parents. What made you want to host that Bible study and what's been the response? The response has been wonderful. And you know, Raymond, your experience with Fox, they never tell us what to say on air. So I've always talked about my faith. No. But when Fox asked me to do this, they knew I had a Bible study in my apartment and they wanted to come and film it. And Fox Nation had just started and they were trying to find different things for us to do on Fox Nation that um, that we're attracted to. So they never were making me go do something I didn't want to do. They're saying, right. what are your interests? Your interest are, is the Bible. Your interest is your daughter. So let's incorporate all that. Let's do something on Fox Nation. So I'm grateful to Fox Nation for allowing me to, to do what I love, and that's talk about the Lord. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, with all the horrible things happening around the world, uh, and we have to report on many of them daily, what's the greatest hope you have for Hayden and your readers uh, as as this book makes its way out into the world? The ultimate hope is that everyone goes to heaven. So that's my ultimate hope that you know Jesus Christ and that um, you have a you have a wonderful life here, that you're healthy and you're blessed and you have children if that's what you want, or you have a successful career. I want everyone to be happy. I wish the best for everybody, no matter what your politics are and all that mess. I don't care about any of that. I have my own beliefs, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to love you. And so I really want the best for other people. And my number one prayer is that they'll know Christ because that's going to save their lives eventually when mm -hmm. this is all said and done. But also I want you to have fun. I want you to enjoy your life. I don't want you to take life too seriously. I have so many friends at Fox that we have worked and worked and worked to get our way to the top, to get up to the top. And, you know, I was 39 years old when I had my baby, when I finally decided, okay, now I can financially finally have a child. Now I can, and I'm glad I did that. But I look at my friends who had babies at 21, 22, 23, 24. I, that was not for me. I knew that I would, I needed to get where I was going before I could do that. But, um, I love those friends. I love the fact that God put a bestowed on them at an early age that being a family, that's all that mattered. And that is, at the end of the day, those are the people that are going to be around you when you take your last breath. And so that's most important. But I think don't take life too seriously and have fun and enjoy life and be kind and generous. Yeah. No, we, we need all of that. Uh, fun and yeah. kindness. And the book, the book is filled with that. I mean, uh, not only the illustrations, but the rhyming quality of the book throughout. And again, it's infused with faith without being, you know, preachy or heavy handed. It's really right. a beautiful right. um, celebration of life and children and, and family, what we're all here for. Ainsley, thank you for being here. Uh, I'm so glad you were born by Ainsley Earhart. It's available everywhere at bookstores, online. Uh, you should get it for your family and most importantly, read it to them. Ainsley, thank you. Oh, thank you. Talk to you soon. I want people to come yes. and come and see us on the book tour. So go to AinsleyE.com and then you'll find out where we're going to be. Okay. It's a deal and I'll be there. Before we go, some sad news. Father Frederick Miller, the esteemed uh, theologian, head of theology at Mount St. Mary's, died this week. He was a father to so many priests, a very dear man. Pray for the repose of his soul. Uh, that is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. I'll be speaking to Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, former head of the Vatican's doctrinal office. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff, 
and crew of EWTN News. Thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.